Good morning. My name is Jeff Novinsky, and before you rack your brain too hard trying to figure out the Novinskys in the church, they're in the room. They're right over here. So we're all here. Um, I actually came from a uh, denomination uh, a long time ago, I I guess maybe 15 years ago, um, but married into the uh, Morton clan uh, from Ottawa, Kansas. So my wife Christy is here, uh, my daughter Britton, and my son Locker are also here, and I'm just so happy to be here with you. Um, I'm from the Smart Road Congregation in uh, Lee Summit, a suburb of Kansas City. Um, and I'm just so thankful to be here. I'm thankful the elders gave me this topic um, that I've been able to learn so much. And hopefully I can impart just a little bit of what I learned with you guys today. So that's where we're at. Uh, my topic assigned is titled, Don't Make Me Count to Three. And from the sound of things, we might need to count to three. I'm not sure what's going on. No, I'm just I'm kidding. Um, the idea behind the topic is about how parents, uh, when they have disobedient children, that sometimes they, they want to give them a warning, right? And they sometimes do that counting thing. Um, they start off one, two, two and a half, <laughs> two and three quarters. And they're trying to give that time. They're really trying to give that time because on one hand, they really have this disobedient child that they really want to correct that behavior but on the other hand, they also love them. They care about them. and They want to be merciful and give them just a little bit of time to figure it out themselves before something happens. So, And really, it's difficult to have that balance, right? It's difficult for us to have that balance as parents. As I look out, it's tough. And with squirming kids over this next half hour, it's going to be tough. So here we go. My topic really today is about how God goes through that. Not that God struggles with this. God knows how to handle this. We're the ones who are trying to figure out where is his patience? What does it look like? Will it ever end? And is it limited? And where am I at in all that? So that's kind of the idea. Let me try to formalize that a little bit. Um, As a just and merciful God, is there a limit to God's patience? Or is it unlimited? As And as we have time, we'll also discuss the idea of is there too much long-suffering. We'll see how that goes. Uh, So first, start with me. Let's start with uh, the Apostle Paul and what he had to say. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So let's turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul talking to to Timothy. That's why it's called Timothy. And then he says, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The idea here is that in verse 15, Paul states that he is the foremost sinner. In other versions in the NIV, it says, of whom I am the worst. Paul says he's the worst sinner there. He says, of whom I am the chief in the New King James. And even in the New Living Translation, it says, and I am the worst of them all. Okay, Jeff, I've heard of Paul. Paul did so many great things. He wrote like half the New Testament. He was an evangelist. He comforted churches. He did everything right this was the man and all of a sudden you're telling me that he's the chief sinner he probably had like what two or three little sins that he did somewhere on accident why was paul such a great sinner um well we have to remember before paul was paul 
Paul was Saul, right? Uh, keep your thumb there in your Bible. I'm going to turn over to Acts chapter 7 quickly. During Acts chapter 7, we have another great man named Stephen who's uh, giving a sermon to these scribes and elders. And uh, really, he's laying things down exactly what needed to be heard. And at the end of Acts chapter 7, these people didn't like what he was saying. And starting in verse 59, I'm going to read this in, into chapter 8. And as they were stoning Stephen, that's how serious it got, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen with great and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So it says right here that Paul approved of Stephen's execution. He ravaged the church. I imagine him going door to door, just kicking down doors, interrupting maybe like a meal and dragging people off into the streets. This is what I imagine as I, as I read this. And for what reason? just because they were followers of Christ, followers of the way. Um, and this is what he was doing. He was persecuting the early church with such vigor, such energy, such enthusiasm, such sincerity, remember? Because Paul is thinking about this. He's just trying to wipe out this, what he considered to be an apostate um, offshoot of Judaism. Paul was doing this because he sincerely thought that these followers of Christ were doing the wrong thing, that they were polluting God's church. It's not till Acts chapter 9 that Paul literally sees the light um, and does a 180 and God then uses him as an instrument. Uh, so back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says he is the chief most sinner because he persecuted the church in its infancy. He sinned so heavily against God and his church. But then it says, but I received mercy. I obtained mercy. Well, why? Why did Paul receive this? Let's keep reading. It says that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering, to show all patience as a pattern, as an example to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul received mercy even though he did such terrible things. Paul, as an example, did these bad things, not as an example to us, that's not the example, but the forgiveness that came about because of it. Because Paul was so bad, he's not lost, but there was an opportunity that he could then be saved. And I start to think about myself. There were some tough times in my life. I didn't come to Christ right away. There were some times in my life where I really withdrew. I was not around a faithful congregation. I did what I wanted. I was a person of the world for a while. And I think if we were to admit it, each of us had a, a spell in there. And some of our spells lasted a little bit longer than maybe it should have. But praise God for all those that have, that have come out of that, right? If Paul could be saved after him doing the things he did at the time that he did, there's hope for me as well. And that's comforting. I can receive mercy too. And then we've all heard about people in the world that say, well, I can't be a Christian. I've been too bad. Has anyone ever heard this? Like, I am too bad to become a Christian, right? I've sinned too much. God would never take me back. 
I'm broken and I'm too far gone. You've heard people say this. I have a lot of nodding heads on this. Um, there, if there was an anthem for these people, it might be ACDC's I'm on the highway to hell, right? Um, which celebrates the bad things people do and their excitement to be hellbound. I was, it, it was going around in my head earlier today. I don't know why. It just happened to be there. But, Mama, look at me. Um, but they were celebrating, saying, Mom, look at what I've done. Are these sins the things that we want to be showing our moms? How far gone is a person who's thinking this way? And as we look at the world today, are there sinners? Are there people who are purposefully disobedient to God's commandments? Yeah, there are. I think of the sin of abortion, the killing of innocent child before they can enter the world, robbing them of their entire life. And sometimes that's just out of a selfish inconvenience for the parents, right? I think of the sin of homosexuality, the defiling of a sacred gift that God gave to married couples. There's also lying, there's cheating, there's, uh, there's all sorts of extortion, lots of things that are out there. It's all sin. It's all bad. And I think of how men and women today are not just performing these vile acts, but they're also promoting them. They're celebrating them. They're bringing these sins out in the open, and they're parading them around. They're writing books about them and appearing on Oprah or whatever people watch today, right? Um, and June is Pride Month, right? Have we heard this yet? Have we seen some flags around? Ironically, the Bible never uses the word pride in a positive way. And it never celebrates homosexuality either. So I, it's Pride Month, so that's interesting. Um, but there's a lot of sins that are out there. Let's focus on us for a moment, right? If each one of us had like a little red dot, and it just stuck in our shirts, on our heads, on our hands... How many dots would I have? How many dots would you have? As we would look out here, this entire group would be a sea of red, wouldn't it? Be a sea of red, me included. For we all have fallen short. We've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. So then we look back at our pattern. We look back at the example, right, of Paul in 1 Timothy 1. And Paul sinned, and his sin involved killing. His sin involved tearing families apart, imprisoning the innocent and the faithful. But God still forgave Paul. And so much more, he even used Paul as an instrument throughout his ministry, really to clarify the message, to instruct churches, and to encourage evangelists. Bottom line, if Paul can receive grace, if Paul can receive mercy, if Paul can receive redemption, then we can too. And that's, that's really good news. Okay, Jeff, so you're saying God's forgiveness, His patience, His long-suffering has a pretty big threshold to include Paul. I get it. But is God's patience is infinite. Essentially, can I do whatever I want and get away with it? Right? That, that's what we're getting at, right? How long is too much? How much sin is too much sin? What does this look like? Will God always just take me back? Well, let's go to Romans chapter 1 and we'll take a look there for a while. Romans chapter 1 is, is pretty interesting. I'm going to look at the second half of Romans 1. Really 18 through the end, through 32. And we may be a little bit familiar with this, but Paul's basically making an argument saying that everyone has known about God. You know, as I look at the parking lot and I see these vehicles, I see a Ford truck, right? We all know by looking at that truck, I'm sure there's 
I'm sure there's one out one of these windows. Just pick a window, right? Um, I'm sure there's one out here. But we know that that metal didn't just form up out of the earth. And this wheels just pop right on. And that thing started driving down the road. We know that there was intention behind it. There was a designer. There, was a, there were particular attributes that those people said, hey, we need to do this in order for this thing to work. And beyond that, I know it just didn't happen by random, but there's a name on the front of it that says Ford. I know that someone put that thing together with intention and with purpose, and it works. And when we look out the world, we see those same things. We see God's fingerprints, not Ford's, but God's fingerprints. We were driving in and saw some hay bales, and I asked my six-year-old, I said, hey, do those hay bales just form up by themselves? And he shook his head. He's like, no. Dad, a farmer did that. <laughs> I was like, oh, good. I'm glad, I'm glad we got that. Uh, but from the mouths of a babe, right, um, that he knew. As we look out in the world, we can see all these interdependent ecosystems, how our, even our blood pumps through our bodies, um, how our bodies heal themselves. I, our eyeballs are amazing. I don't know if you've ever thought about your eyeball, but there's over 40 things going on in your eyeball. There's, this, there's an iris and a cornea and a, and a retina and nerves and all these connections, and they're all ridiculously complex. And for your eye to be able to see, all those things have to not just be there, but work together all at the same time. And if they don't, you either can't see, you have faded vision, or no vision at all. We might know about this, right? And even Charles Darwin said that for an eye to come together through natural selection was absurd to the highest degree. It's Charles Darwin. He was famous for something, I guess. But we clearly see that God's fingerprint is on this world. As we look out, we see it. This didn't just happen by accident. It's so clear to us. And Paul makes that point. I, finally, I, I'm finally getting back to Romans 1. Sorry, I kind of went off there. But in Romans 1, in verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes are clearly seen. We see this. He goes, so we are without an excuse. There's no excuse. You know that there's someone who did this. Now what are the expectations? He continues this logic through uh, verse 28. Where it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased or a reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done. See, each person really has a choice. They can acknowledge God. They can learn from his instructions. They can do the things that he wanted us to do. They can draw closer to God. Or they can try things on their own. They can, they can go the way of the world with sensuality, with carnality, with death. And God has allowed the natural consequences to take place afterwards. And He's allowed people to drift. Okay, Jeff, there was a word in there. I, I, didn't, I didn't catch it at all. You probably mispronounced it. Uh, reprobate? Reprobate? It's kind of a tough word. It's a Greek word, or the Greek word of it, um, means someone who has failed to pass a test. They failed to pass a test. Someone who's unapproved. Something that's counterfeit. Imagine someone who's taken a test, the spiritual test, by God's standard, right? And has, by their own choice, come up short. When confronted by the truth of who God is, the reality of His existence, they reject the truth and follow after their own heart's desires instead. I know this person is in danger. He's in a dangerous position before God and before His final judgment. And I think it's a warning to us. I don't want everyone thinking... Oh man, am I? Do I have this? Have I caught this? Do I have a reprobate mind? I, I want to tell you ahead of time, 
this is not something that just happens overnight. You don't just pop in and out of having this. This is a very extreme case, and we're going to see examples through this, uh, through Romans chapter 1 here. So there's about five signs, five symptoms, I think I can say symptoms nowadays, for someone to have a reprobate mind. So we'll start, we'll just go through these fairly quickly. In verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Someone with a reprobate mind may be suppressing or preventing the truth by their wickedness, with wickedness. Uh, they have the knowledge of the truth, but they choose to reject it through repeated wicked actions over and over and over again. It's not just one time I made this one accident, I was going 80 miles an hour in a 65, uh, but it was more than that. It's not just one small mistake that you made and you, you're here over and over and over again. And we can see those and we can experience those wicked actions. The second one is in verse 21, so Romans 1, 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Um, I love it when my kids get like a little something from someone. There's a, there's a few people in our church, maybe there's some in your congregation that give out little like lifesavers or something to the kids after church. And I'm just, yeah, people are pointing now, like that's the one that does it, right? Okay, um, so... And I love it when my kids, they kind of line up a little bit. They know it's coming. But uh, they say thank you. And they just, they're just they just so grateful for that little token to say I love you. And they say thank you back. And it, it gives me joy. But when the opposite is true, when they don't say thank you, I'm like, oh, how arrogant of you. That you line up, you expect this person out of the kindness of their hearts to give you this. And then what do you do? You throw that wrapper on the floor and just run off, Right. That never happens with our kids, right? But how do you feel? Well, you're fine because it's, it's a wrapper. It's no big deal. But what has God given us? He's given us more than a, a mint that's going to be here for five minutes and give us fresh breath for a little while, right? He's given us so much more. Someone with a reprobate mind doesn't acknowledge those gifts. He doesn't acknowledge that God even exists for it. I don't need God. I don't care for what He's given me. I'm not going to thank Him for anything. I'm fine without Him. Wow. What arrogant words coming from their heart. The third one in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. This could be a sermon all to itself. Oftentimes we hear a lie over and over and over again. And when we don't balance that, against a healthy dose or a healthy inoculation of God's truth, we start to believe that lie, right? We hear it over and over again. And I don't have this written down, but I think some of it comes down to, for me, my consumption of information. What are, what are my sources for my information? I think we talked about that pretty well today. What are our sources? What can we use as sources and not sources? But then when I listen to the news, when I read the newspaper, when I'm taking all this in, going on social media, what is it that I'm listening for? What is it that I'm seeing and what is it that I'm taking in? And am I balancing that? Or am I even listening to God anymore and what God has to say with God's truth? Or am I just listening to the way of the world? This person has switched the object, so they've, they've bought into this lie. Not only have they heard the lie over and over again, they believe it's truth, and all of a sudden they've replaced their object of worship. They're no longer even worshiping God. They're worshiping the creature 
they've changed their way of uh, of praise, of worship, of their affection for the Creator, and are worshiping the creature instead. This really looks a lot like time. How are you spending your time? What's most important to you as an individual? Sometimes that's power. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it could be a lot of things. The fourth one, uh, verses 29 and 31, if you're still trying to say, this might be me, hopefully this is a checklist to tell you this is hopefully not you. Um, as we go through a list of several words describing what this person is filled with. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Filled. Filled to overflowing. Picture that. Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to, par- disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Essentially, there are no limits or restrictions for their sinfulness. Nothing that they're doing Nothing, nothing is off limits for them. Um, they're in it for themselves, and they will do anything to get what they want. The fifth one of these is in verse 25. Verse 25, Though they know God's righteous decree, and those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they know this, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They demonstrate not just their desire, they don't want to change, but they also encourage other people to do the wicked things. They applaud and encourage those to follow after them in their depravity. Well, God's, God gives each person the free will. He wants and desires for us to choose Him, but some will choose the way of the world. Okay, I think it's time for another car analogy. That, that truck one went over so well, so we'll go, we'll go back there. Um, imagine driving down the road. Okay? And you're trying to get to a destination. I think we've all done this. We can all relate to this. This is um, some direct experience that we can work on here. Um, and so when we're doing this, there's some safety involved. You know, as I was an early driver, you know, I had my hands at one of the 10 and 2, right? And I'm watching. I'm kind of making sure my speed is exactly the right amount here. I'm like, oh, I, I'm a mile over. Maybe I need to slow it down just a little bit. I'm trying to just adjust. I'm looking at my mirrors. I have to consciously think of those things. I'm making sure I'm not this far over or that far over. I'm making sure there's a, you know, so many car lengths between me and the car in front of me. You're consciously thinking of all those things. As you get to be more of an experienced Christian, let me go that direction, some of those things become more automatic. You know the things that you're supposed to be doing. You know the limits, the lines, and where all those things are without having to constantly check. You can kind of just see you know where they're at. But there are safety things in line when you're in the road, right? The first thing is there's lines. You know you're supposed to be between these lines. Um, And you can see that. And all of a sudden, if you're kind of not paying attention and you kind of move over, oh, oh, there's a line. I got to move over. I got to get right in the place where I'm supposed to be in the line. But if we're a little bit more distracted, right, there's more. All of a sudden, there's that, that rumble strip that goes through there, right? And we've all hit a rumble strip every so often, right? Uh, where somehow we've sort of, we're over here a little bit, right? But usually that's enough to get us to move back because not only is it the visual of the line, oh, there's the line, oh, I need to get over here, but there's a rumble strip that all of a sudden is giving us a noise, it's vibrating our car, so it's also cueing into our ears and as well as our feeling. So there's three senses all of a sudden at work that are saying, hey, by the way, you're, you're getting off track here. 
You're drifting too far. Get over where it's safe so that you can get to your destination. Well, when we're really distracted or when we've purposely made bad decisions so that we are incapable of driving properly, um, there's other things that are in place, right? There's guardrails. There are those big cement blocks on the side of the road. Um, and they're to prevent us. They will slow down your car. I'm, I'm not from experience. They will slow down your car uh, and keep you so that you're not falling over the, uh, of a cliff, right? You're not way down in some ditch that you can't get pulled out from. And those are in place. Well, God, too, puts things in place, like our conscience, like our church family, to help us to know when we've drifted a little bit this way and we need to get back. And for the most part, we might have a little sin, a little hiccup, a little distraction in our life, and we might cross a, a line a little bit. But most, for most of us, we just hit back over. But if someone is so encumbered, they might purposely do this. I have no idea why, but they might purposely try to get off the road. Or they might not be able to control their actions, and they might be flying off the road. There are times in, in our spiritual life where people have chosen to do those things um, for it. But God has put those things in place so that we can get to our destination, our heavenly destination, safely um, for it. So there's, a, there's an analogy for you. Hopefully that got us back on track. Hopefully I'm not drifting too far, but we'll see. Um, I was a high school math teacher for a while, and I taught a full range of students. Um, some I could literally toss a book in the classroom, and they would fight over it in order to see who could like learn from it. Like There were those students. Those were fantastic students. There were others that were like, math, I don't really need that. When am I ever going to use math kind of thing? And that was okay, totally fine. I, I liked both groups for different reasons. Um, but sometimes you'd get students who just showed signs of not being successful. You know, they, they wouldn't turn in their homework. They didn't pay attention. They didn't participate in class. They struggled on tests. But I cared for each one of those kids. I cared for each and every single one of those and usually would just take a little bit of prodding, a little bit of a reminder to, to you know, I'd pull them aside. I'd encourage them. And for the most part, those kids are like, hey, thanks for caring about me. They didn't say it that way. <laughs> And they would, they would course correct, and they'd be right on track. But every so often, there was a, a kid, or there was a rare occasion, that just refused. Said, I'm not doing any of this. And sometimes they'd even have a little bit of attitude. They'd say, no way, I'm not taking your class. I'm not doing any of this. That was loud. <laughs> and they chose not to do what they were asked. And at the end of the semester, no matter how much I cared for them, no matter how much I wrote emails to parents and talked to the principals about it and things like that, there was still a grade recorded at the end of class or at the end of the semester. And they either passed or they failed, but it was their actions that dictated it. It wasn't mine. I, I did my part, but they needed to do their part. I feel it's the same way with God. As we look at Second Peter 3, 9, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God doesn't want anyone to fail a test. God doesn't want anyone to veer off the road and end up in a ditch. He doesn't want any of that. He wants each person to make it safely on that journey. And that's why those things are on God's road. I never wanted any students to fail. God doesn't want any of those students to fail either. Um, and if we've wronged him, 
through sin, he just wants us to repent. He wants us to choose him. So the question here is, are these people, are they too far gone for God's forgiveness? Another way to say this, which is stronger, God's love and patience or man's rebellion? That's kind of what we're getting at. Well, God's grace is too rich. And God's love is too expansive to really to ever declare someone beyond the ability to be redeemed. Um, as it talks about in you know, 1 Corinthians 1, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, our job really is to plant water and pray. Um, so we can plant the seed with a sinner. Hey, what you're doing is wrong. We can water that seed through encouragement to try to help them through love, through our example. Um, and we can pray that God will change and produce life in that person's calloused heart. There are guardrails there on purpose. Um, Isaiah 1, 18 through 20, I like this. It says, Isaiah 1, 18 through 20, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We've heard this maybe. Though, you, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. God wants our obedience. Some will choose to be disobedient. God you know, wants our obedience, but more importantly, He really wants our heart. I think there were several speakers that talked about our heart, our intentions, how we're honoring God. What is it that God wants? He wants our heart. And I'm reminded of Joel chapter 2 where it talks about a day of the Lord. Not the day of the Lord, but a day of the Lord and the impending doom that was looming over the people. A well-deserved punishment is coming, but the people were still able to do something. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, you've probably heard this as well. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts... And not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He can stop this at any time. But I love this. Rend your heart, not your garments. When back in the day, when you were upset over something, you would just tear your shirt, you would tear your clothes to say, I am sorry. I am filled with sorrow. I am overwhelmed with sadness over this thing that just happened. But God says, rend your heart, tear your heart, make the change not just on the outside, but make it on the inside. Really change. Repent might be another way to say this. Change what you're doing. So on one hand, God will forgive. But on the other hand, He hates disobedience and knows that sin must be punished. God sees eternally and he knows how our hearts are stubborn how they can be hardened how they can be calloused we could talk for a second about searing of conscience but I'll skip over that based on time and I think we see this idea even from Jesus himself sorry I'm going to go to some red letters here to prove some stuff but it's okay it's totally fine in Matthew 13 uh, his disciples have asked him about why he spoke to everyone in parables. You remember this? Why do you speak to them, everyone in parables? And in Matthew 13, starting in verse 13, it says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, 
the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but not never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, has grown callous, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And here's what he says, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. God does have patience. He sees where we're headed, though. I have a bit more to go, but I think this actually works pretty well for an invitation. We talked about this road, right? We talked about going down this road and how there's a visual, there's a line right there that we can see if our eyes are open. And if we're drifting a little bit, there's maybe some things, some rumble rumble strips or things that we should be able to hear if we're listening for them. We need to have a heart that's right. We need to be able to know that what's going on. And if we go over some cliff, we'll go over the edge. There is a way out. But that way out depends on calling someone with a truck, right? Someone who can pull us out of there. And being obedient to the commands that they give us so that they can lift us up properly. They can restore us. They can fix our car so we can get on that road again. Repair it. Make it even better than it was before, maybe, so that we can get on our road. This is what happens when our heart obeys the gospel. When it hears the right things and responds in the right way. And it knows what to do. And if the gospel invitation is something that you're interested in, I want you to make your intentions known. It's very simple, but it's very profound. It's the best decision you'll make in your life by putting your heart in the right place and trusting in Jesus Christ. If that's your intention, please make it known to one of us as we stand and sing number 614.